the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. It's a testament to the idiocy of our education system that students are being taught propaganda in the classroom. When it comes to climate change, students are learning that humanity is to blame for an impending climate catastrophe. This has led to so-called eco-anxiety that's left many children feeling hopeless and guilty for the state of affairs. It's truly insidious how these lies are being taught to children when they're so young. They're being brought up to be activists rather than critical thinkers. Yeah, yeah. what they should be learning is the science behind climate change. I mean, even a cursory study of the field would show them that vast changes in the Earth's climate system have been happening for millions of years, and that what we're experiencing now is by no means abnormal. Yes, and we should focus on communicating effectively about climate change to children as well as the general public. For people no longer see climate change as a terrible threat, governments will not be so easily able to control us and trick us into accepting vast changes to our standard of living. Yeah, absolutely. Now, my co-host, Mary Jean Harris, who's a master's of physics, and she's my co-host today, she's going to introduce our guest, who will be speaking to us about this crucial topic, and in particular about his book, For Children. Yeah, for sure. Our guest today is Dr. Ian Plymer. Dr. Plymer is an emeritus professor of geology from the University of Melbourne, Australia. He is the author of numerous books on climate change, including Heaven and Earth, Global Warming, Birth, and Science, and his latest book, The Little Green Book, a trilogy for primary, secondary, and post-secondary children on climate change to enable parents and grandparents to deprogram those exposed to education and eco-anxiety. So welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, so why do you say that the world is already at net zero? I mean, everybody keeps talking, oh, we have to strive for net zero, but you're saying we're already there. Well, the calculations have been done by others, and I've also done the calculations showing the amount of emissions that humans release into the atmosphere of plant food, carbon dioxide, and then looking at how much of this plant food is used in photosynthesis by the grasslands, the rangelands, the crops, the forests, and the continental shelf. And in the case of Australia, we absorb about 10 times as much as we emit. Canada is also the same. The US, surprisingly to me, actually does absorb more than it emits. And when you look at the whole planet, despite the emissions of China and India and the Middle East, the planet absorbs more carbon dioxide than humans emit. And clearly the balance is made up by emissions from oceans and oceans carry a huge amount of carbon dioxide much much more than the atmosphere and a very slight change in ocean currents with the change in the topography of the seafloor or change in the shape of continents or upwelling or temperature change that will release carbon dioxide and the numbers that come out are about 97 percent of all emissions are natural only 3% is from human activity. So if you do the calculations, we're already at net zero. I'm not so sure that we should be worrying about 3% of global emissions anyway. And I'm not so sure we should be getting into a, a lather and getting worried about releasing plant food. Plant food is good for the environment. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Bob Carter used to say that the human emission was so small in comparison with nature that it was essentially lost in the noise. Would you say that's the case? Oh, very much so. And your very own Moore, Patrick Moore from Vancouver Island, he is uh, going one further. And as listeners would know, Patrick Moore was one of those who started Greenpeace. Once it became a, a communist organisation, they kicked him out. But Patrick's area is in ecology, is in plant ecology. And he argues that we should be burning more coal. We should be burning more oil. We should be putting carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere because we've had a very, very long decrease in atmospheric carbon dioxide from about 500 million years ago when we first had multicellular life on Earth to now. And that decrease has been from about 0.7% to 0.04%. And Patrick Moore argues that Unless we put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're going to have a crisis of plants. They're not going to have enough food. Mm -hmm. And I guess that would mean the end of life. Well, that certainly would uh, mean the end of life. However, uh, I'm not so sure because we've seen in the past when we've had this decrease in carbon dioxide, we had C4 plants appear. And these were plants like corn and sugarcane. And these adapted to live with lower carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, We might have the evolution of C5 and C6 plants. We don't know. There's a very distinct chance that we could lose plant life on Earth and have our fourth atmosphere. Our first atmosphere was hydrogen, helium, ammonia, methane rich. The second atmosphere, which was for the bulk of time, contained a very high amount of carbon dioxide, about 20%. And the third atmosphere is the uh, oxygen-bearing atmosphere which has varied from about 35% to about 5%, uh, but it's currently at 21%. And we could then, at that stage, evolve into a fourth atmosphere, which would be nitrogen and argon, an inert atmosphere with not enough oxygen for um, animal life and not enough carbon dioxide for plant life. So these are pure speculations. I'm reticent always to, to make speculations because nature has a lot of surprises. But... We really have to, over the long term, think that carbon dioxide has been decreasing. And it's not a pollutant. Children are being told that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. It is not. It's plant food. There are pollutants out there that are deadly poisonous, but it's not carbon dioxide. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And with when it comes to the net zero, so what are the uh, the other scientists or the media really referring to when they say net zero? Because it seems like they don't have the right idea. Well, they certainly don't have the right idea because when you ask them to describe net zero, they can't. And they will talk about having no emissions of carbon dioxide. Well, my answer to that is very simple. Drop dead. Because the very fact that you're breathing (laughs) means that you're breathing out 4% carbon dioxide. You're breathing in 0.04% and you're breathing out 4%. So you're actually producing carbon dioxide from... Um, digestion of food and that uh, is adding apparently this toxic gas to the atmosphere so firstly net zero is not defined and secondly net zero is a wonderful term it just rolls off the tongue no one knows what it means but it's used to frighten people and the media are only interested in a scare story if you correct them then they will uh, be on to the next story they just don't care it's all about selling yeah. So how would you define net zero if from a ge- geological perspective? Does it even make any sense? Is it what is it? 
Uh, it's God's wallet. There's no such thing. <laughs> mm. the, the planet yeah. um, naturally emits carbon dioxide, and we see this for many submarine volcanoes. The planet emits carbon dioxide from soils. The planet emits carbon dioxide from hot springs. The planet is emitting carbon dioxide from many of the rocks. Um, the oceans are emitting huge amounts of carbon dioxide. Um, so from the geological perspective, you've got to stop all natural processes and you have to get planet Earth to be a dead planet with absolutely nothing happening. So the term is totally meaningless. Uh, the term is used to frighten people and it, it doesn't mean anything in science. It's not a scientific term at all. Yeah, for Which, sure. So uh, if we look at the Earth's climate history, has there ever been a correlation between temperature and carbon dioxide? There's the exact inverse. There is no relationship between temperature and carbon dioxide. We've had six major ice ages on planet Earth. And within these ice ages, we have glaciations, and that's where the ice sheets expand. And we've had interglacials, and that's um, where the ice sheets contract. We're currently in an interglacial. Now, in those six major ice ages, every one of them started when we had more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than now. Yet we're told that a higher carbon dioxide content will drive global warming. So on the long term, we see there's absolutely no relationship at all between temperature and carbon dioxide. And if we plot, say, the last 500 million years, when we have much, much better data, and this is the work of Berner and others, then we see that there is a decrease in carbon dioxide over time. Yet temperature has gone up and down. And it's gone down during ice ages, it's gone up uh, during the rest of time. And for 80% of the time, it's been warmer and wetter than now. For 80% of time, uh, we've had no ice on Earth. So on that scale, there's no relationship. If we look at another scale, such as the uh, cycles of climate, uh, we can see written into the ice. Every time we have natural warming and natural cooling, uh, that's preserved in the ice. And the ice sheets show us that when we've had a natural warming, then later we get an increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide. It's the exact inverse. Temperature is driving carbon dioxide. It's not carbon dioxide driving temperature. So this clearly means that if you have a warming, um, which you might have after an ice age, or in our case now after a little ice age, then it is no surprise that the natural carbon dioxide content will increase quite significantly. And we see a very good information written in the rocks of extracting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And despite the fact that we're extracting it, we, we are still not having a correlation. We would expect over time, over, say, the last 50 million years, when we've been extracting carbon dioxide to go into limestones, to go into shells, to go into vegetation, we should therefore expect uh, a massive uh, change in the atmosphere. Well, we've had a change. We've actually had global cooling, and we've had global cooling for the last 30, uh, uh, sorry, last 50 million years, and we came into an ice age 34 million years ago. Again, on that scale, there's no correlation. So we, we have difficulty. Um, the, the basics don't work. And I have many times asked activists, journalists, and people who call themselves scientists, I've asked them a very simple question. Can you give me half a dozen scientific papers that show that human emissions drive global warming? 
That's never been done. I've had obfuscation, I've had abuse, but I've never been delivered. Half a dozen scientific papers that can satisfy a critical thinker that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. So the whole premise is, is underpinned by um, a lack of data. And in science, we have what's called the coherence criterion. So in climate studies, if I'm to come up with a conclusion, this has got to be in accord with history. It's got to be in accord with archaeology. It's got to be in accord with chemistry and geology and biology. And if it isn't, then you reject your theory. Now, that's not happened with climate. With climate activism, uh, this theory is used as an attack on Western countries and an attack on industry. So the methods used in science, such as rejecting a hypothesis because there's no data, that's just not used. So we have no correlation. We have no relationship between carbon dioxide and temperature. And we have seen massive changes in temperature on planet Earth. We've also seen massive changes in carbon dioxide on planet Earth, and the two are not related. Yeah, wow. That's something I've got to bring up with the city council here in Ottawa because they are swept away with climate hysteria. You know, it's interesting, Ian, the person who really started to move me from a climate alarmist, I was sort of a mild alarmist, I wasn't crazy, but was Tim Patterson, who was a geologist, of course, at Carleton University. And, you know, I looked at the geologic record, and one thing that struck me right away was that 440 million years ago, the Earth was in what would look to be the coldest period in the last half billion years, and yet CO2 was 10 times higher. <laughs> so, I mean, yes. it doesn't, you know, you just see that right away. <laughs> well, Tim Patterson would know of the, the ancient past as well. I, I know his area of expertise. And it's even more prevalent in the what is called the cryogenian period. And this is where we had two massive ice ages. Uh, one was called the Sturtian and one was called the Maranoan. Uh, in both those ice ages, we had a sea level change. It was only 600 metres, not a few millimetres of people are having conditions <laughs> about. Uh, the second thing was that we had a temperature change where the planet was a snowball. And it's called snowball earth times. And this is when we had ice at sea level at the equator. And the great scientific questions are, how did that happen? And there's a really simple answer. We don't know. We argue about it a lot, but we don't know. But what's even more interesting is we went out of that into a warm period of time. And that's when the first multicellular life on earth appeared. And we had a temperature rise from perhaps may, maybe minus 20, minus 40, up to plus 40. Now, that's about a Whoa. 60 to 80 degrees Celsius temperature rise, uh, and we don't know why. And I find that absolutely fascinating. So during that great ice age, the cryogenian, we saw huge temperature rises and falls, yet carbon dioxide was at about 20%. And we know that. We can work out how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere because this is now gone. It's now been sucked up into rocks. That rock is called dolomite. That contains 48% of the gas carbon dioxide. And you can just measure the volume of dolomite on Earth at that period of time and then back calculate and say, oh, well, we, we must have had 20% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it is wow. the ice ages that are telling us about climate change. And it is the past that is telling us about the present. It's not a model which is based on ignoring some pretty fundamental information. It's not a model 
that create speculations into the future. And we've been using those models now. We've, we've had them around for 40 years, and we've been able to compare models with measurements. They just don't work. They predict the world's going to end. Uh, however, uh, things are pretty stable. Now, what those models are based on are people assuming that carbon dioxide drives climate, and they ignore important factors like clouds. So uh, the models don't work. We can't predict the future, and all of the climate scare is actually coming from models. It's not coming from people who measure. And if you measure, which you can measure things that happened in the past, you get a very different story. And what we find from the past is that we have cycles, and we have cycles where uh, climate is driven by tectonics, by the pulling apart and stitching back to the continents, and that's uh, roughly on 400 million year cycles. These measurements we can do of having the wrong galactic address every 143 million years, and that drives climate. Uh, we can measure the orbit of the Earth, and that changes every 100,000, 40,000, and 20,000 years, getting us closer or further than the sun. And we can measure solar cycles as a multiple of 22 years. We can measure oceanic cycles as, as a, a multiple of 60 years and lunar tidal modes where we're pushing warm water up into the Arctic every 18 and a half years. So we've got measurements in, in the past. And if you're claiming that because you're alive today on planet Earth, the world is different, you have to say, well, all of the measurements of the past using the physics and chemistry um, don't apply now. Now, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> They do apply now. Yeah. Well, this shows exactly why the media almost never interviewed geologists, because <laughs> they have a perspective <laughs> of what really happened, not, not what's modeled to might happen. <laughs> yeah. Now, the media steer clear of geologists. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, um, our science is used to find uh, coal and oil and mineral deposits. And if we get it wrong, we get sacked. Whereas if you're a climatologist, mm -hmm and you make a, a prediction, uh, you publish that, and on the, as a result of that, you get promoted or you get another research grant. So we're two very different beasts. Uh, the second thing is yeah. geology looks at the past, and if you're a farmer or have a trained eye, you can actually read the landscapes and read the past. It gives a very, very different story. And the third thing is that geologists tend to be a little bit earthy and don't put up with much of the BS that you get from the media, and they will say so. <laughs> so the media steer clear of this. Yeah. The second thing is that the those climate activists promoting doom and gloom, they won't debate us. I've been trying to debate people for 20 years. They won't do it, and they know why. They know why. Yeah, <laughs> because you cream them. You beat them easily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. We already talked a bit about it, uh, this already, but what does the geologic tell us about the climate change we're experiencing now compared to times past? I guess it's really saying that what we're experiencing now is not abnormal, right? What we're experiencing now is boring, which is most, most of the history of the Earth is boring. There's nothing special happening, and we are in a normal interglacial cycle. We came out of an interglacial when it was warmer, when sea level was about seven metres higher, it was about four or five degrees warmer than now. We came out of that 116,000 years ago and we started to cool because we were getting further and further away from the sun. And there were spikes of warming and spikes of cooling and these were dependent upon the other cycles, the 43,000 and 21,000 year cycles uh, of orbit. 
and we had a dirty big volcano in Indonesia uh, 74,000 years ago, and that filled the atmosphere with fine particles of dust and sulfur gases, and we had a wipeout. And we probably lost other human species, but we humans went down to 4,000 breeding pairs. We very nearly became extinct, and humans in that part of the world spread out everywhere, which is the time when Australia was first colonised by the first wave of uh, people coming into the country. And that period of time was a critical period of time to have a, a dirty big volcano during a cold period. And we were cool until about 20,000 years ago. We were at the zenith of our last glaciation 20,000 years ago. In Canada, you were covered by kilometres of ice. In Australia, we had howling anticyclonic winds, mm -hmm. shifting sand and dust around, giving us the lowest, uh, giving us the sand dunes. Um, we had lakes dry up. Um, we didn't, we were not covered by ice except for the alpine areas, but we were enjoying an ice age, a, a glaciation the same as you. And then it started to warm up 14,700 years ago. And we had warming and cooling during that period of warming. And one of the cooling periods was the Younger Dryas. And this is when huge ice sheets in Canada dropped into the Atlantic Ocean. So the surface of the Atlantic became cold. Uh, the weather suddenly got cooler. And it took about 1,300 years for the oceans to invert and for warm saline water then to be at the top of the oceans. And that period, the Younger Dryas, was when we had a massive decrease in temperature, about a 15 degree Celsius change, and that happened only over a decade. And we came out of that um, Younger Dryas in about a decade. And again, a 15 degree Celsius rise over a decade. Now, that temperature rise didn't kill people. That actually led to a thriving of populations. That actually led to an expansion of humans across the planet. We had another warming, then we had another cold period when people from the Anatolian highlands went down into the Black Sea Basin, which then were grasslands where they could grow crops and have their uh, cattle. Uh, and then we uh, came out of that into a warming, and then we've got much better geological records which we can combine with historical records and we had a warming period in Minoan times and it cooled and then we had warming during Roman times about 400 years when it was warmer sea level was slightly higher and in Roman times it was probably about four or five degrees warmer we know it from history we know it from the good records of where they harvested salt and where they had crops and then it cooled into the Dark Ages, and that was exacerbated by some dirty big volcanoes in Indonesia, Iceland, and perhaps Central America. And then we warmed up again, and that was in medieval warming times, where we had three or 400 years when it was very warm, a few degrees warmer than now. And then we dropped wow. into the Little Ice Age, and we came out of the Little Ice Age in about 1850. Now, if you come out of a Little Ice Age, What's temperature going to do? Is it going to fall or is it going to rise? Well, it's obviously going to rise. Yeah. So what we're seeing at present is cycles of climate. And these cycles are on a very large scale driven by the Earth's orbit. And on a smaller scale, they're driven by the, the sun. Now, our current cycle is that we came out of our interglacial 14,700 years ago. We were at the peak of the interglacial between 7,000 and 4,000 years ago. And since then, we have been cooling. And during this... Yeah, just before you go on, that, that's an interesting point. So you're saying that the warmest period in the current interglacial is not today. 
It's not today. No, the warmest period was 4,000 years ago. And since then, we've been cooling with spikes of warming, like in Minoan times and Roman times and medieval times, and spikes of cooling, such as in the Dark Ages and the Little Ice Age. We are still on that cooling trend. Now, unless governments can legislate to change the orbit of the Earth, we will continue that cooling trend. Uh, we may then um, go into a warming trend for other reasons, but we've been cooling for quite a long period of time. Um, on one scale, we've been cooling for 50 million years. Um, and in the cycles of ice age, or glaciation and interglacials, we have reached the peak of our interglacial about 4,000 years ago, and we're cooling. Now, this is not idle speculation. This is well-published uh, literature. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the point is that humanity didn't go extinct. Much bigger changes than we've seen in the, in the last century. Now, humanity has the amazing ability to adapt and we humans uh, live on the edge of ice sheets like the the sami in northern finland or we can live in the steamy tropics like the dayaks of Sar um, uh, sarawak we can live in the deserts like the bedouins or the australian aboriginals we have adapted to live in all sorts of environments as have many other uh, organisms so a one or two degrees celsius change is nothing if you walk outside uh, you'll get a change of, well, if you're in Canada in wintertime, you've got a change of 20 degrees Celsius if you walk <laughs> outside. Uh, in Australia, the same. You'll get a change of 20 degrees Celsius in our summertime. If you change from one room to the other, you'll get a temperature change of a couple of degrees Celsius. It doesn't kill you. We have adapted and yeah. we have invented things yeah. <laughs> like central heating. We have double and triple glazing. We, we have things like a warm top that I'm wearing at present because it's wintertime in Australia and summertime in Canada. We have adapted. And so even if we do come into another glaciation, um, humans previously learnt to survive in times of glaciation and probably one of the greatest mm -hmm. inventions ever was the bone needle where they could use skins and sew these skins together using a needle made from bone and keep warm. Now, we're much better now. We have double glazing. We have central heating. We have energy systems. Uh, we have much better clothing. Uh, we, we can work in Antarctica uh, and, and survive the conditions that Scott certainly couldn't survive because they didn't have the clothing. We have much better clothing. And there's, there's no such thing as bad weather. It's only bad clothing. Yeah, for sure. So people can see in listening to this, interview you can hear exactly why media don't interview geologists because they realize what's happened in the real world we're going to continue with our discussion with ian plimer and we're going to talk about his latest book for example a trilogy for primary secondary and post-secondary children on climate change so people do stay tuned you want to hear about these books especially so this is tom harris we'll be right back after the break How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. 
For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. So we're back with Dr. Ian Plymer. He's an author of some pretty incredible books. And um, Mary Jean, you were going to ask him about that, I think. Yeah, so uh, could you tell us more about your recent book series, The Little Green Book, and how it's able to connect with children and also help mitigate their anxiety about climate change? Well, I'd written a few books on climate because through the eyes of geologists, I was concerned about the absolute nonsense that was being spoken in public. And so I wrote a book, um, Heaven and Earth, which was quite a good seller. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Green Murder. And basically, Mm. I was looking there at how climate policy kills people. And my concern has been with children and I had spoken to my grandchildren I have three grandchildren in Montreal I have another one who's an adult in Australia and listening to what they had been taught at schools and my exposure to students that that were coming through the system and then coming into university I thought no these people are being fed absolute nonsense 
they have eco anxiety, they have guilt, they have no reason for living because the planet's going to uh, cook, fry and die them uh, and kill them. Uh, and, and these kids are ending up with things they shouldn't have, like depression about the future, uh, about hopelessness. And I thought, well, I will write a couple of books. And the first one of the trilogy was inspired by my seven-year-old grandchild in Montreal. And it's looking at how your body works. It's how you eat and drink. And I use the word we don't use in Australia as cookies and how um, if you eat cookies, then you convert that into growing and you get rid of waste products. And one of these waste products you breathe out is carbon dioxide. And so it's clearly not a poison. And if it is a poison, then go and kiss someone you don't like. It'll kill them. Um, <laughs> so this book is a, a, a seditious book. There's a lot of fun in there. And I go into body functions, how you get rid of carbon compounds with poo. And I go into what's in poo it, uh, and all the pathogens and viruses and bacteria there. So don't touch it, don't play with it. I then go into we and why that is sterile, why it's yellow um, and uh, how you're getting rid of carbon compounds that way. I also go into farts and farts are chemically quite interesting and kids love farts. I know I... Seven-year-old grandson <laughs> held up a book to me only a couple of weeks ago uh, about farting, and he was just in spasms of laughter. And so I go into how this is converting cookies into methane and carbon dioxide and water vapour, and you get rid of this, and you fart 15 times a day, and your farts go at 10 kilometres an hour. And I give kids <laughs> little recipes as to what to eat if they're going on a school excursion and they want to smell out the bus um <laughs> and so th this is a book um basically on body functions which kids are obsessed with at that age and on how they all involve carbon the food you eat what happens inside your body your body cells and what you excrete how it's all related to carbon compounds and you breathe out carbon dioxide when you go to bed at night uh, you converting some of the carbon from the cookies into carbon dioxide. And when you wake up, um, you're 200 grams lighter because of the loss of carbon dioxide. So uh, I go into that with a whole lot of little experiments for kids. Don't try this at home, which is meaning go and try it. Uh, <laughs> scientific experiments about eating cabbage um, and um, arsene, a very poisonous gas and now, how do you know you're alive? I'm just reading from the book now. Well, you breathe out carbon dioxide and your bum points to the ground. So um, th this is a book to, uh, aimed at the way 8 to 12-year-olds think. It's a book for parents and grandparents to, to read to their kids and roll around laughing. But the message is very simple. We need carbon compounds to live. We breathe out carbon dioxide. It is not a poison. And uh, it has nothing to do with climate. And so um, I point out the planet has always changed. It always will. Uh, how it's cooler now than it was at various times in the past. And I stress that carbon dioxide is plant food. You couldn't grow the wheat for the cookies without carbon dioxide. You couldn't um, plant the wheat, weed, harvest, process and transport the wheat without burning diesel and putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it's a, it's a basic lesson 
on the importance of carbon dioxide and how it's not a poison and how it's a very important part of the life cycle. The next one is, uh, I've called it for teens, and this little green book for teens um, is a bit longer and it's written in the style of Horrible Histories, which is a series that many parents would know. And it's looking at words like unprecedented. Are these floods unprecedented? So I go into things like flooding, hurricanes, heat waves, um, forest fires, and just point out none of this is unprecedented, that you've only got to look into the past and you see that we are undergoing processes that are quite normal to the planet. Where we have all these processes going on. I go into um, what we dealt with before about net zero. Uh, I go into um, how you make oil, gas and coal, where the carbon comes from from those and what we do when we burn it. Um, I look at sea level changes and looking at some of the areas of the past where we can see that sea level has gone up and down an enormous amount. But also rely on what teenagers are like. Uh, you would remember teenagers go to the fridge and they open the door and the fridge is crammed with food and they say, oh, there's nothing to eat. So I compare what they have with kids in third world countries, what they eat, where their food comes from, how they might cook food in a hut using twigs and leaves and, and bark and how women and children your age die from the fumes and there's a third of the children in the world live like that so you're telling me there's nothing to eat then i go into uh, some of the other aspects uh, that uh, are important where if you want to go to the toilet it's very easy in a western country but a third of the children in the world your age have to go outside in the bush and find somewhere to have a poo that's not fair um, um, yeah. That is really not fair. Um, and how I ask him, well, if you're holding a, a banner saying climate action now, what actually are you going to do? Are you going to stop having a warm meal? Are you going to stop having house heating? Are you going to stop um, getting driven to school or going to school in a bus and, and walking to school? Are you going to get rid of your um, cell phone? Are you going to get rid of your computer or tablet? This is the net zero world that people are telling you you should have. Are you going to do that? Are you going to lead by example? Or are you just going to hold a placard up and find new friends? And then I, I approach some moral questions saying, if you're going to be swanning around in an electric vehicle, children your age have been working in mines in the Congo and they die in these open pit and underground mines from rock falls. They die from cobalt poisoning. This cobalt goes into your electric car. If you want to swan around in an electric car and think that you're morally superior to those in a, an internal combustion engine, think again. You are actually contributing to people your age dying. And I talk about child slave labour and the fact that there are more slaves now than have ever been in the history of time. I talk about all the things I'll never hear at school. Oh. So um, this is a very seditious book. It's a book for parents and grandparents to shock their children with. And the third one is uh, a little green book, and it's for post-secondary, uh, post-school kids, I've called it for 20s and wrinklies. And basically 
the first half of the book is looking at the history of the planet from the first day, which was a Thursday, 4,567 million years ago, and just looking through all the mass extinction, looking looking through the climate changes, looking through the sea level changes, and, and basically saying, look, we've seen it all before, and the world you're living in is not different. And then I go into a little bit more detail about the cycles of, of climate uh, and start looking at energy, saying, well, look, you people will be buying your first car soon. You people might be able to buy a house soon. And what do you have to consider in terms of energy? Uh, who is missing out in the world? Uh, so these books are to jolt young people into reality. The books are for parents and for grandparents to read to their children. Um, it already has been banned by Facebook, and it was interesting. There was a Facebook fact check of the book done, and this Facebook check was two weeks ago, and they claimed the book was fraud. Well, two weeks ago, this book was being printed. They, they didn't have access to it. Oh. No one had seen it. So um, I'm already getting criticised. <laughs> it's only been out a couple of days here in Australia, and, I'm, and it's written in a language for kids in the Western world. It's not written using Australian examples or Australian idioms. And it's 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 already being attacked, and I yeah. see that you know when when you're above the target and about to release the bombs, the flak increases, and I expect that. So, and I expect that this this book will not end up in school libraries unless parents donate it, and if they donate it, then they can insist that books giving a different story um, uh, be taken out of the library if this book is banned. So this book is deliberately so how, how, how can, how can aimed they order at children. It? They can order it through Connell Court or through Amazon. Okay. Um, and there is a North American print run being done. There's a UK print run. Uh, um, we're now into the second print run in Australia. It's only been out a couple of days, but it's being reprinted. And that's not because we didn't print enough. It's just that it's just, it's, it's just exploded. And so just call up the Little Green Book and uh, you'll find all the links to it. And it's a trilogy, yeah. so deliberately got it, the one book for um, 8 to 12-year-olds, which I've called for ankle biters. Um, uh, the next one is uh, for teens, and the next one is for, for post-teens. And at yeah. a CPAC conference last weekend, a lot of people were buying these books for grandchildren that haven't yet been conceived. <laughs> oh wow, that's great! Well, we'll link we'll link to the book when it goes up to podcasts on Monday, so that people can just click right on it. And you know, I I think I'm going to order those books myself because they give wonderful examples that you can use, which get people laughing. Because you know, in many ways, the climate scare to me is is so ludicrous. It's almost like Monty Python or something. I mean, it's so ridiculous. So many aspects of it are ridiculous. You know, they were saying how July was the hottest. Uh, hottest time in earth that is in human in 125,000 years yes what did our satellites say a thousand years ago <laughs> exactly right well there's ways of working out what the climate was doing a thousand years ago ways of working it out and for example in the book for teens i talk about whales um, we hunted whales to boil them down to get whale oil for lanterns and once we had mineral oil, we used that in lanterns, and it was oil that saved the whales. It wasn't people demonstrating like Patrick Moore. It was oil. I go into the same with coal. I point out that 
the forests of North America and Europe and England were harvested to make charcoal for glassmaking and for making iron. And as soon as coal was used, we stopped chopping down our forests and these regenerated. It was coal that saved the forests. I talk about the motor car, how when we first had the motor vehicle appear on the roads, the roads were knee-deep in horse poo. This horse poo was washing into the water wells. People would get diseases <laughs> from, oh, eat, wow, yeah. from drinking that water, and it was the motor car that saved lives and um, created less pollution. These are facts, but they're facts that the kids don't get. And I've got a little insert here, I'm just reading from the book for teens, a little insert called Hug a Plumber. And I point out tap water and sewage systems have saved more lives than medicine. So therefore you have to hug a plumber. Now that's true. Yeah. So they, don't, they don't hear that perspective. So I have a lot of little jokes in there. I have a lot of little... Um, strange things there to break up uh, bits of text because kids don't read text. Um, I have a lot of drop-downs. Um, I've seen, I talk about settled science. Uh, we've seen that before. I talk about propaganda and headlines, uh, electric vehicles, um, how that's been an absolute total failure. Um, and the amount of mining we have to do if we want to have lithium or copper in these vehicles. Uh, and Again, talking about plant food, um, talking about how we can cancel people. And I give the example of Lysenko in the Communist Soviet Union in uh, Stalin's day, where Lysenko, who was a fairly ignorant peasant, um, became fairly high in the party system. And he decided that you could have crops grow much, much better using communist principles where they were all equal, of course, <laughs> except for them. And they didn't need any fertiliser. And what happened was that there was starvation. There were 30 million people, mainly Ukrainians, who starved due to Lysenko's wow. wacky scientific ideas. And I saw this myself when I was in the Soviet Union in the 70s and drove across from Soviet Karelia into Finnish Karelia. They were still suffering from it. And I was pointing out that that Lysenko ideas, where people got cancelled and sent to gulags and shot and lost their jobs, is no different from today. People like myself who are coming up with a, a rational, logical story get cancelled. Yes, we don't get shot and don't go to the gulags and uh, I'm in many ways untouchable employment-wise. Uh, so uh, I go into the fact that we've seen it all before, that you are living in times when people have um, collectively gone crazy. And I get them to do little experiments, oh, uh, experiments yeah. Yeah. with toast. For example, it's scientifically proven that triangles of toast taste much better than squares of toast. Now go out and do the experiment. Do it a hundred times. That's the way you test it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. Getting kids to participate and to have fun and to, and to laugh. And I know from yeah. teaching over all those decades, you have to break it up. You can't have one long monologue, you lose them. And you've got to break it up uh, with bits of fun. And I've done this in this book. It's been seditious. It's been um, using common sense and and saying things that they would never, ever hear at school. For example, most uh, wildfires actually started by arsonists. The rest of them are by faulty power systems, such as we've recently seen in Hawaii. Um, but in Greece, uh, the most recent fires have been started by arsonists. Now, that we know worldwide. It's not due to climate. It's due to people being stupid. So 
these yeah. are things that they don't hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Do you give presentations? Because I'll bet those would be really fun to go to. <laughs> I average about four presentations a week. I've just come back from a week of travel. I'm absolutely exhausted, uh, and I'll be doing it again uh, next week. Um, yes, I do. And at these presentations, I, mean, I, I had a 1,000 people at one of my talks. When was it? Last Sunday. Now, oh. I had a 1,000 people there. I get a lot of people coming to these talks. Um because parents and grandparents who have seen a bit of the world, who have experienced a bit of the world, who have travelled a bit, are aware that their children are being fed nonsense. But they don't have the tools to counteract that nonsense. Yeah. And the aim of these, this trilogy of books, the Little Green Book, Volumes 1, 2 and 3, the, the aim of these books is to give parents and grandparents the weapons to counteract the rubbish that these kids are coming home from school with. Kids should be coming yeah. home being more literate and more numerate and having a knowledge of history and Western civilization, etc. They don't. They're coming home with political mm -hmm. propaganda. And we are now having uh, a generation of children who don't know very much, who are not very literate and numerate, and this is the end result of dumbing down of our education system over the last 50 years. We are reaping the rewards, mm -hmm. and that makes it so easy for the activists to get at our school children, which to me is a form of child abuse. We should be teaching our kids to be self-sufficient and employable and proud, upright citizens. We're not. We're teaching them to be guilty. We're mm -hmm. teaching yeah. them to be anxious. We're teaching them to have mental diseases. Yeah, yeah, yeah for, sure. for sure. Well, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it sounds like the, the way that you're presenting the books is uh, really great because it kind of connects the kids and lets them see how uh, climate change and all these other uh, natural processes affect their life in particular because sometimes if they learn about it it sort of seems very remote maybe you'll changes in the past or uh, gradual changes but sounds like you really bring it uh, more close to home for them well yes and again I learned from my grandkids um, the, one of them in Montreal came home and she said oh you know I, I shouldn't be driving uh, uh, you know, it's it's destroying the planet. So her father, my son, said, "It's fine. Um, you're going to walk to hockey and carry all your gear. You're going to walk there. Um, I'm not driving you there. You walk." <laughs> and that quickly put it into reality. Yeah. Well, you know, it's <laughs> interesting. I often thought that, for example, in Ottawa, if there's a group who think that we can run the city on wind and solar power and you know go to net zero, that they should do it for a year. And show us how it works. Don't drive a car for a year, except electric cars. Don't, you know, do all the things that you're saying the whole city should do. Do it for a year and come back and show us how it works. <laughs> yes, I go into that. I go into that in, in the three books um, where the kids can challenge their teacher. Well, what do you do? Show me by example. Do you live in a cave? Are you a hunter-gatherer? Um, what do you actually do? So yeah. it's, it's basically... Uh, and trying to attack the hypocrisy that these kids are faced with. But I'm also concerned that children are being taught to lie. For example, if more senior kids have got a, an assignment to do or an essay to do, they have to write the story about the climate following the party line, that we're all doomed and it's all dirty humans and, and we're horrible sinners. And yet the kids know different. They know that's not right. Yet to get the marks 
they have to write something that they know is not correct. And this mm. is appalling when we're teaching young children to lie. And so the aim of this is to give some of the more spirited kids the weapons to stand up to the teachers and say, that is not correct. Or an even better question is, show me. Or what are you doing? Yeah, don't don't yeah, put the onus like, on me. What are you doing? Well, Mm -hmm. Well, so often it's do what we say, not what we do. And, you know, it's interesting because you remember Gandhi, his motto, his motto was live simply so others simply may live. They do the opposite of that. They live extravagantly and tell us not to. <laughs> well, yes, I, I put out a book about a decade ago called How to Get Expelled from School. Oh, and yeah, I have it was, here, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was 101 <laughs> questions that you asked your teacher. And there were questions for Friday afternoon if you want to get thrown out and go off and play play football or whatever. And the Australian government put up a website uh, attacking me and trying to answer the 101 questions, but they couldn't do it. <laughs> and they spent, they spent half a million dollars putting up this website attacking me. Now, they're going to do the same with a little green book. They're, they're going to, I'm sure, uh, put up a website in Parliament. They often mention me i you, you you can see the horns on me and i i flirt with the <laughs> devil i mean it, it's just nuts so i'm trying to give kids with a little bit more courage or those who are a little bit cheeky to be able to say well why aren't you doing this why have you got a mobile phone why did you drive to school to teach me why which cave do you live in do you have central yeah, yeah. heating uh, and and basically attack the hypocrisy which these kids are being fed with, and that hypocrisy is in forcing the children to lie. And I think bringing up a generation of kids knowing that they get better marks if they lie is 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 a form of child abuse. It's just appalling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it also I think a question to ask a teacher would be, what would be the impact of us all living the way you're saying we should live? Like, surely the answer, if they were being honest, is that a lot of the human population would die out. Well, yes, and I, I, I think that the climate movement is actually a death cult and they want people to die. And I briefly mentioned that in one of the trilogy and basically saying to kids, well, um, accept that. Um, your teacher is, is, is telling you to live like this and die get them to go first and promise you'll follow. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll starve myself to death. I promise to do it, but you go first. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. The, kid, the kids will understand the joke. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a group in the United States that has thousands of members. It's called the Human Voluntary Extinction Movement. And they're an environmental group. And they really think that if humans disappear, that nature can go back to its so-called natural state. And I always ask them, I say, well, then what are we if we're not natural? Are we supernatural? Like, I mean, the whole green movement in many ways is just ludicrous. Yes, well, why does a voluntary extinction group exist? They should have done the deed and should, shouldn't exist. They should have all gone. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, well, actually, they get around that saying, oh, well, we're going to do it by not having any children, but we're not going to kill ourselves, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this has been really fun, been really fun this, this interview, and I'm going to share it with a lot of people because the geologic perspective of climate change is something we have to publicize more and more. In fact, when I testified before the city of Ottawa uh, in the fall, 
I'm going to show them some of these graphs that you're talking about, because I don't think they have a perspective as to how much the earth has changed by itself long before we were even here. And it can help them realize that, yeah, 1.1 degree change in 143 years, like it's it's trivial in comparison with what nature does. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've, so I've got we've a graph talking- in here. There's only one you need to show them. Um, and they're referenced, you'll be able to find the originals. But there's really only one graph you need. And uh, that just shows oh. the perspective. Yeah, the temperature over geologic <laughs> time and the CO2. That's right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. that's the one. But we'll include that actually in the write-up when it goes to podcast because I think it's important for people to see that. So our, our guest today has been Dr. Ian Clymer, Emeritus Professor of Geology from the University of Melbourne in Australia. We were able to catch him early in his day and late in our day. And he was talking about some of his amazing new books, The Little Green Book, a trilogy for primary, secondary, and post-secondary children. And, you know, we got to order that because we need those examples to bring up that for parents, for grandparents, and for the children, of course. So this is Tom Harris and my co-host, Mary Jean Harris, with our guest, Dr. Ian Clymer, signing out from the other side of the story.